as we continue through the book of 1 Corinthians in our series called Bodybuilding, um, that the last word in chapter 9 is, is an unfortunate word. In fact, Paul was writing these words. I think he was giving a warning to himself as well as anybody who would say, now that you have this new life in Christ, don't drift away from it. Don't take it for granted. Don't get complacent in your faith. Don't start being lured away by idolatry and other things that can pull you away from the faith because Paul's talking about running this race. And he says, all runners who run in a race, they're all running to win, but actually only one of them wins the race. And he says, you guys run in such a way that you'll win the race. Train yourselves. It says, I train and discipline my body. Uh, the actual word used in the King James Version, it says, Paul says, I buffet my body. He's beating his body. He's beating it into submission so that he's running the race. He's staying on the course so that he will win the race. And he says, lest, and here's the sort of the warning to himself, which is very ominous for anybody who's in Christian leadership. He says, lest after having preached Christ to other people, he said, I myself might be disqualified. And Paul said he could actually be disqualified if he didn't stay faithful to the calling that God gave him to be an apostle. So uh, there's this ominous word kind of hanging over the end of chapter 9, disqualified. Wow, I, I don't think anybody would want to be disqualified from God's family. How do you keep that from happening? Well, one of the ways that you keep that from happening is you remember God's dealings in the past with our spiritual forefathers. The first question on the outline is, what kind of spiritual legacy did your forefathers, did your spiritual ancestors leave you? How did you hear about the Christian faith? I mean, I loved hearing Bob's story and, and how uh, he heard the gospel. Some uh, co-worker at work invited him to church. Can you imagine how how difficult that was for that lady to say, Lord, please, I know you want to use me in your kingdom. I know you want, to, you, you want to be God of this city. You want your kingdom to come and you want to do it through me. So, Lord, give me the courage to ask my coworker Bob, if he wants to go to church with me. And look what happened as a result. Bob's life was changed forever. Bob's been doing great ministry, and now he's an elder and a spiritual leader in our church. So the... the the chain reaction, the, the ripple effect of doing one brave, courageous, obedient thing for God and how that changed the world. You know, it can happen to every one of us. But it's only going to happen to us if we're not disqualified. It's only going to happen to us if we take warning from history of our spiritual ancestors. So Paul takes a pause in this letter and he says, I want to talk to you about the spiritual ancestors because... Uh, if you remember from history, not all of them finished well. In fact, most of them did not finish well. So here we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Before we jump into the scripture, let's just bow for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit be present with each one of us and illuminate our hearts and our minds. Lord, as we prayed in the prayer meeting earlier, may our ears be attentive. May we uh, may we be able to focus with our minds and put everything out of our, our, our attention to give our focus to you because you have the words of life. To whom else can we go? 
like Peter said. Lord, you're the one who has the words of life. So Lord, I pray that we'll, we'll take advantage of the precious time that you give us here on Sunday morning and lock in to what you want to say to us, your people. Help us to not just to hear it, Lord, but help us to believe it and to put it into practice. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul says these words to the Corinthian. You remember, we're reading somebody else's mail, right, in 1 Corinthians 10. Uh, Paul is talking to these believers in southern Greece in the first century. And here's the, the interesting thing. Human nature doesn't change a lot. It didn't change for the ancient Israelites. It didn't change for the Corinthians uh, 2,000 years ago. And the same fallen human nature that is prone to wander, as that old hymn says, that is part of our nature as well. Paul says this, I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. So Paul's talking about the Israelites in the Old Testament. All of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them. You know, from the moment that the Israelites left their slavery in Egypt, even before they crossed the Red Sea, as they stopped and camped on one side of the Red Sea and the Egyptian army was coming, even then, as I was reading in Exodus 13, God had already provided them with a pillar of cloud to protect them from the harsh desert sun in the day. It says, all of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them. All of them walked through the sea on dry ground. Uh, one of the greatest miracles that, that you'll see uh, in the movie, The Ten Commandments, it's a wonderful scene. In the cloud and in the sea, all of them were baptized as followers of Moses. So there was a baptism, there was an identification, a public identification. We are now God's people and Moses is our leader and we are going to follow God after going through the, the sea on dry ground. All of them ate the same spiritual food, which we know as manna, which is a great Hebrew word for what is this? You know, basically, what is this? Um, but it, it was a food that God provided them every morning miraculously for 40 years until they came into the promised land. And all of them drank the same spiritual water. And it says later on that, you know what, they drank from the same spiritual rock and that rock was Christ. And it just reminds me that when the Bible says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, even before Jesus became a human being in the incarnation 2,000 years ago, born to Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem, even before that time, Jesus was still active because he's God the Son, and he was with the Israelites, and it says that spiritual rock of which they drank from miraculously, that rock was Christ. So Paul's giving a history lesson to this Gentile church in southern Greek, Greece. And Paul was a man of Jewish background, so he knew all these stories. But he had to explain some of these stories to people who didn't know much about the Old Testament. Uh, this was... Um, uh, he, he was talking about the spiritual ancestors and about their time with God and their dealings with God and, and what God did with them based on their faith and their trust in God uh, and said that many of them didn't follow through the way they should have in faith with God. It says, um, and, and talking about the Old Testament, you know, the, Paul brings up these stories from the Old Testament. 
I don't know if you're aware of this, but in Christendom in the last couple years, there have been some spiritual leaders, some people are being falsely accused of this, but there are some spiritual leaders in the churches that are basically saying, look, Sunday morning is a time for the New Testament. Sunday morning is a time to talk about the, the, the writings that are the scriptures that are geared specifically for followers of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament, which by the way, if you have your Bible, the Old Testament is about three-fourths of the text of your Bible. So three-fourths of the Bible is not about Jesus and the church. Three-fourths of the Bible is about God and his dealings with the Jewish people, with the Israelites, uh, over about a 2,000-year period of time from the year 1500 B.C. to 400 years before Christ when the last prophet Malachi gave the words of the Lord. And then there was 400 years of silence before Jesus came on the scene uh, in the New Testament. And there's a lot of people that says, you know what, all those writings in the Old Testament, they're, you know, they're nice history, there's some good literature, but they're not really necessary for Christians to read. It's not that important for Christians to read. And I just want to address that real quick because I think there, there are some main uh, reasons and good advantages and blessings that happen as you and I, as followers of Christ, as we read and study the Old Testament. I want to talk about five of them. So if you have your bulletin, your outlines, they're in there. You can fill in the blanks of five reasons why it is beneficial for us to read and study the Old Testament. Number one, the Old Testament reveals Christ. The Old Testament reveals Christ. Um, the Old Testament doesn't just point forward to Christ, it reveals him. No more so does the Old Testament reveal Jesus than what we call prophecies. Prophecies in this sense are predictions. Prophecies are words that uh, people who spoke by the Spirit of God gave many hundreds of years ago before Jesus even became a human being. And they were talking about Messiah, the Savior, the Deliverer. And they were talking about what kind of ministry he would have. And so when you go to places like Psalm 22 that talk about Jesus dying on the cross, but written by David a thousand years before Christ. When you go to Isaiah 53, where he talks about the suffering servant. Where you go to Isaiah 61, where Jesus unrolls the scroll of the prophecy of Isaiah there in the church of Nazareth. And he, and he starts uh, saying, this is what is the ministry of Messiah is going to be. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me and has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And then he rolls up the scroll and he says, guess what? This scripture has now been fulfilled in your midst. So the Old Testament, many of those scriptures are good and beneficial for us because they reveal Christ. What's another benefit from reading the Old Testament? Well, the Old Testament number two is a dictionary of Christian vocabulary. It is a dictionary of Christian vocabulary. How are we going to understand all the theological words and phrases and concepts of the New Testament? When you come to a word or a concept, the first question would be, well, where does that word come from? And most oftentimes what the answer is, the word comes from the Old Testament. The, the definition of a New Testament word comes from the Old Testament. Why? Well, the New Testament, even, you know, we have the Old Testament and the New Testament. So again, Old Testament scriptures, God and his relationship to the Jewish people, to the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? New Testament is now God 
and his dealings with whoever in humanity, whether Jew or non-Jew, which we call Gentile, whoever follows Jesus, whoever puts his or her trust in Jesus, that is a Christian, that is a Christ follower, member of the church, and that is what the New Testament is written specifically for. But the authors of this New Testament, most of the authors of the New Testament were Jewish. There's only one Gentile, only one non-Jewish author that wrote anything that we have in the New Testament. Do you, anybody know what his name is? Luke, right, it's the name of our dog too, uh, which is true. And that's why, you know, I always, I always say in a low voice, huffing, I always say, Luke, I am your father. You know? So, and he looks at me like, Ugh? he gives me that dog look. But anyway, uh, Luke is the only Gentile author of the New Testament. So when we want to find out what certain words mean in the New Testament, one of the best places to go is the Old Testament. It's a dictionary of Christian vocabulary. Number three, uh, I know they're trying to fix the slides in the back because they're all, they're all listed for you, but not, the fill in the blank number two is dictionary. The fill in the blank number three, the Old Testament gives us doctrine or gives us teaching in story form. In story form. That's why we read these stories of God's people. God has not only given us his laws. Yes, we have the Ten Commandments. Uh, but God has also given us his lives. The lives of his people. God has incarnated his Ten Commandments. His moral laws. In the lives of Old Testament characters. They provide us with these fascinating biographies. That inspire us. Or sometimes they warn us. For example, you want, to, you want to learn why polygamy is wrong and why it messes up families? Let's read in Genesis about the life of uh, Jacob. Let's read about Abraham. Let's read about, you want to know why uh, one of the Ten Commandments is do not commit adultery? Why don't we read about the life of David and the disaster that happened to him and his family when he committed adultery? When Jesus says, when he's talking about his return and he says you need to be alert and you need to be ready and you need to be sober and Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. If you don't know the story in Genesis 19 about Lot and, and the angel that pulled them out of Sodom and Gomorrah when God was going to destroy that city for its wickedness, if you don't remember when uh, God, the angel, through the angel said, don't look back, and Lot's wife looked back longingly at Sodom and Gomorrah, and God turned her in judgment into a pillar of salt right then and there. When Jesus says, remember Lot's wife, otherwise you wouldn't know what that means. So he gives us these teachings in story forms. It says, uh, when Jesus is being asked to perform miracles, hey, the Jews are telling Jesus, show us a sign that you're really Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus says, I'm not giving you any sign except the sign of Jonah. And if you don't, if you don't know anything about the Old Testament, all you would do is say, you'd be like my dog Luke. You would say, Jonah? Like, like who's this? And what is, what's the story with Jonah? Oh, yeah, the story of that prophet that God told to go preach judgment on Nineveh. And he ran away from God and God pursued him. And he was three days and nights in the belly of a fish. And Jesus says, just as Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the fish, I'm going to be in the belly of the earth. 
before he was raised from the dead. So, so you wouldn't understand without knowing the stories from the Old Testament. When Jesus is warning a Galilean town about coming judgment, and, and Jesus actually says to Capernaum and uh, to these other towns, and he says, you know what? It's going to be better for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment. Then, it, then it, it's going to be better for them, whom God totally judged and rained down f uh, fiery sulfur on them to destroy the city. It's going to be better on those people than it's going to be on you people in these Galilean towns who saw all the miracles Jesus did and still did not believe he was the Messiah. So it's going to be better for them than you. So where do we learn about all these references that Jesus gives uh, in his teaching? We learn them from the Old Testament. But here's one of my favorites. Because here's, here's one of my favorite comparisons of, of what the Old Testament is all about and what the New Testament is all about. It says in, in John's prologue, in the beginning of John's gospel, it says, for the law came through Moses. The law, all the commands of God. These are the, th this is the right behavior. These are, these are the moral instructions. If you live this way, you will live and you will please God. The law came through Moses. But then it says, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We get the grace of God through Jesus Christ. We get something that we can't earn, that we don't deserve, but God is giving it away because he pursues us with his reckless love. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The Old Testament gives us doctrine in story form. Number four, hey, we're back on. I didn't even look up until uh, we're back on. The Old Testament comforts and encourages us. When we read the narratives, the stories in the Old Testament, we are comforted by God's sovereign love. We're comforted by his majestic power that he's God over all the nations, not just this local deity over the land of Israel. God is sovereign over all the nations. King Nebuchadnezzar had to learn that the hard way, right? Uh, and you say, King who? Okay, Old Testament, read the book of Daniel. See, even I as a, as a Christ follower, I'm giving these Old Testament references. You have to read the Old Testament to know what I'm talking about. Um, so God's loyal faithfulness in his relationship with Israel when we know the Old Testament backgrounds, for example, you get to Hebrews chapter 11. Oh my goodness. How are you going to understand Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament if you don't know all of the people that are being referenced, right? Who's in the hall of faith? And you, you go through all these names, Noah and Abraham and Abel and, and all of these people that are listed and you say, and Gideon and Jephthah and Barak and stuff. And you say, these people are all mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. Who are these people and where did they come from? They're all in the Old Testament scriptures. They're all given to us as examples in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. Everybody mentioned there is a hero because they were the ones who lived out a life of faith and trusted God in their own time and their own generation. And they made a difference for God and his kingdom. So the Old Testament can encourage us with these stories. And then finally, the Old Testament, number five, the Old Testament makes you appreciate the New Testament more. You know, for all that the Old Testament reveals about Messiah, the prophecies of his coming, who Messiah is going to be, what kind of ministry he's going to have, there's still a lot of shadow. There's still a lot of concealment. And that's why the New Testament, and in fact, the last book in the New Testament is called Revelation, because Revelation means an unveiling. It means that which was hidden is now being revealed for everybody to see. 
And the Old Testament, in some way, they, they, you may have heard this. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. And the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. So we, sometimes you get frustrated when you read the Old Testament and say, I wish, I wish Messiah would just come. I wish that God's people were more faithful than they, than they were. I wish God's people didn't have in the Old Testament such a miserable track record of failure. I wish they, I wish by and large they were just, they would all stick with the faith and they would end up victorious at the end. And you realize, you know what? Those Old Testament people, they had God's Testament, they had God's Ten Commandments, they had his laws, but they didn't have the Holy Spirit. They didn't have God, the Holy Spirit, indwelling them to help empower them to live the kind of life that pleases God. And that's one thing we have as a great advantage in the New Testament. We have God's Holy Spirit. So it makes us appreciate the New Testament more. We see God, on, we see God incarnate. We say, what is God like? Just look at the life of Jesus. We have that in the New Testament. He was alluded to in the Old Testament. He was sketched out a little bit uh, vaguely in the Old Testament, but we see, the, we see God in Jesus as he really is only in the New Testament. And it makes me, for one, appreciate the New Testament even more. So God, he, it, it, Paul starts off telling all these stories about God's people and, and their time with God in the desert and how they were identified as God's people, baptized in the cloud, baptized in the Red Sea, walking through it on dry ground, identifying with Moses, God's feeding them miraculously with manna in the morning and the spiritual rock that, that flowed water miraculously to God's people in the desert. God is doing all this for him. And here's what Paul says. Unfortunately, yet God was not pleased with most of them and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness, destroyed by the destroying angel, is what, a, is what one of the translations says. And then look what it says in verse 6. I think verse 6 and verse 11 are great little summary statements in 1 Corinthians 10 because they give us this, this encapsulation of what Paul's saying. Why am I telling you these Old Testament stories of God's people and their failings uh, in their relationship with God. It says, these things happened as a warning to us so that we would not crave evil things as they did. You know, the whole context, Paul's in 1 Corinthians. He's writing to them. He's talking about uh, I, uh, sexual immorality. He's talking to them about singleness and marriage. He's talking to them about uh, this whole idea of idolatry connected to should we or should we not eat this meat that's been sacrificed to a false god. And, and Paul says, I, I want you to go back and I want you to remember the Israelites and I want you to be warned by them because the problem that the Israelites had in the Old Testament was they started off well with God and then they kept their and then they took their eyes off God and they started looking around and looking for other things to follow right so look what it look what it says uh, it says these things happened as a warning to us that we would not crave evil things as they did so when Paul says crave evil things, what were some of the evil things that they were craving? What was leading them away from a right relationship with God, right? Why, does God, why did Paul want to tell us these stories? So that he could warn us and say, you know what? You have the same human nature that they do. You have the same propensity to drift away from God as they did in the desert, even though they had a daily reminder by a pillar of fire, of 
a pillar of cloud over the head in the daytime and a pillar of fire by night and the miraculous bread in the morning. Even though they had daily reminders of God's presence and provision, they still drifted away. And Paul says, you have the same tendency. I don't want you to drift away. What were some of the evil things that caused them to drift away? Number one was idolatry. Idolatry is just having anything else in place of God of depending on or looking for anything in the place of God. I remember Tim Keller preaching on idolatry one time, and Tim Keller said, look, if you go to bed at night thinking about something and what you're trying to accomplish and what you're trying to do, what you need to have in your life, if you wake up in the morning and your number one goal is, is pursuing this one thing, and if that one thing isn't God himself, if, it, if your mind is so focused, I, I have to have this one thing, if I don't have this one thing in my life, I'm not going to be happy, and if that one thing is not God himself, watch out, because that thing that you're focused so much on could very well be an idol. So 1 Corinthians 10, 7, Paul says, Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As the scriptures say, the people celebrated with feasting and drinking, and they indulged in pagan revelry. If you read ahead, like I hope you did, and you were in 1 Corinthians 10, and you looked at that reference, and you said, huh, I wonder what that quote of Old Testament scripture is from. It's from Exodus 32. Exodus 32 is one of the saddest chapters in the, in, in the Old Testament. Because God has just started off in this awesome relationship with his people. He's just committed. He said, look, if you'll follow me and you'll be my, I, you'll be my special treasure, you'll be my special people, you'll be the apple of my eye, I will protect you, I will bless you everywhere you go. And God's giving them all these promises and they're saying, yes, 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 we will follow you, O oh God. And then God finally says, all right, I'm taking Moses up on the mountain, on Mount Sinai, and I'm going to give him all my commandments, and I'm going to give him my laws uh, that'll be righteous for you to live, and you wait until Moses gets back. And Moses was up on the mountain a long time, 40 days. And somewhere during those 40 days, God's people, so faithful to God, so awesomely thankful for God's presence. Somewhere they, they came to Aaron and they said, we don't know where Moses is. We don't know if he's coming back or not. You need to make a God for us. Make a God for us so that we can worship a God. And Aaron, being a people pleaser, he gave in to the wishes of the people and he says, hey, take your gold earrings and take them off your ears and throw them into this pot. And they threw all their, their earrings into the pot. I mean, something that was dangling from their own ear. This is how stupid an idol is, right? Where does an idol come from? Isaiah says, well, a guy chops down a tree and he uses some of the wood for firewood and he takes some of the other wood and he carves an idol and he overlays it with gold or silver. And the next thing you know, the, the same guy who cut the tree down and knows right where the wood came from, he's bowing down to that piece of wood saying, oh, save me, oh, save me. And the Israelites are taking the very earrings that were on their ears dangling and they throw it into a pot and the gold melts down and somehow a golden calf comes out of that fire. It never does explain how it actually happened. But somebody formed a golden calf, which was one of the gods of Egypt. And now Israelite, the Israelites are now dancing and worshiping and engaging in pagan revelry around the golden calf. And Moses comes down the mountain and God is ready to destroy the people. He says, you know what? I'm going to wipe them out and I'll just start over with you, Moses. And you know, what I love about Moses is not, he's not just a prophet. He's a great um, interceder. He's a mediator for God's people because Moses said to them, well, God, let's just think of this logically. 
you know, can you imagine having this, this conversation with God like this? God Almighty knows all things. God, just think about it. If you destroy these people now, do you know what all the nations are going to say? That God led his people out into the desert just so he could destroy them in the desert. You don't want that kind of reputation around the world, do you, God? And it, it actually says that God listened to Moses and God says, okay, fine, I'm not going to destroy the people. So there's a, 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 one of the stories about idolatry. That was the first evil thing. Do not crave evil things as they did, like Paul said. What was the first thing? It was idolatry. What was the second thing that was an evil thing that they were craving? Number two was immorality, and specifically sexual immorality, because Paul spells it out. And we must not engage in sexual immorality as some of them did, causing 23,000 of them to die in one day. And that goes back to the story in Numbers 25 where Balaam, this false prophet, is, is contracted by this pagan king to try to curse the Israelites and, and God won't let him curse the Israelites. So the Moabites come out with plan B. Hey, if we can't get this prophet to curse God, these people, maybe we can you know, mess them up another way. So they had this big pagan feast with a lot of sexual immorality that goes with it and invited all these Israelites to join in the feast and they joined in the feast and they were involved in sexual immorality and God was fed up with them. 23,000 of them died in one day. So that was another evil thing, was getting involved with sexual immorality. Number three, it says, and nor should we put Christ to the test or put the Lord to the test, as the scripture says, as some of them did and then died from snake bites. There's another Old Testament story about uh, grumbling and complaining against God and saying, God, why did you take us out to the desert if you're just going to let us die here? We had decent food to eat back in Egypt and now all we got is this yucky man of bread every single day. I hate it. Blah, blah. You know, and they're complaining and grumbling against God and finally God got sick of it and he says, I'm going to judge you for that. And many of them died and it was only through this covenant agreement with God where, where Moses was pleading and saying, Lord, don't let all the people die from these poisonous snake bites. And, and finally God says, okay, Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a pole and I want you to make an image of a snake and I want you to put the image of the snake up on the pole and I want you to raise the pole in the middle of the camp and it says, whoever looks upon that snake this is a strange commandment, right? But whoever's, whoever has this snake bite that is poisonous and is going to make them die, if they look up on the image of this snake, they will be healed and they will live. It's the same story that Jesus told Nicodemus, right? Where he said, just as Moses lived, lifted up the snake in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man, talking about Jesus, he must also be lifted up. So Jesus is talking about the future event where he was going to voluntarily give up his life and be uh, willing to die on a cross for our sins so that whoever would look on Jesus and put their trust in Jesus, they wouldn't die from their sins because the wages of sin is death, but they could have forgiveness and eternal life by looking on Jesus. And that whole uh, uh, story that Jesus did, he said there's a, there's a kind of a mirror image, a reflection of, that, of the story of the cross even in the Old Testament. And so Paul says they were testing God because what was it that caused God to send all the poisonous snakes into the camp? They were testing God. And then number four, they were also grumbling against God. It says, nor grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. Grumbling and complaining against God, even though God had just rescued them from slavery. 
So it's this idea of, 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 quote, really looking a gift horse in the mouth and saying, God, I'm just not even going to be thankful for all the things that you've done for me anymore. And then Paul says in verse 6, these things happened as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. So you have these four things. I don't know if we have the next slide, but the four things that God's people set their hearts on that led them away from, from faith in God. Idolatry, sexual immorality, testing the Lord, and grumbling. And here's the question for us today. Because we have a like nature, just like those Israelites did in the desert who strayed away from God. What is going to keep us from straying away from God? What is, what is going to be the most likely stumbling block? What is going to be mo the most likely snare for you in your life that might cause you to stray away and drift away into idolatry or one of these other four? Which of these sins do you struggle with the most? When you come to grips with that, then you, then, you, then you can say in an honest prayer, Lord, forgive me for going in the wrong direction. Forgive me by being led astray by this. God, I want to come back to, to full faith and commitment to follow you. And I want to keep my eyes on Jesus. Because Jesus actually said that. Uh, when you think about all these things that can pull us away, one of the questions that come out is, okay, if... If it's so easy to be led astray from our Christian faith, then what can we do to stay on the right path? What can we do to stay in the direction that God wants us to go? And I think the answer is found, one of them, I mean, there's lots of places in the New Testament, but one of them is found in John's Gospel. In John's Gospel, chapter 8, Jesus said, if you hold to my teachings, right? I think another, uh, um, a more ancient translation says, if you abide in my word, Right? If you hold to my teachings, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. What keeps us free is holding to the teachings of Christ, which means we've got to focus on Jesus every day, which means we need to be in God's word every day, which means we need to be in prayer every day so that we do not drift. And that's why Psalm 95, who was, which is actually referring, the whole, Psalm 95 tells some sad stories because it says, when you review God's history of his people, there's so many of them have fell away from the Lord. And now the psalmist is saying, given that bad history, can we learn, can we learn from negative examples as well as positive examples? I want to learn from Daniel's faith and how to pray and how to, how to represent God in a pagan culture. Daniel's a great example for that. But there's also negative examples of other people in the Bible and says, I don't want to be like that. Can you read from somebody's negative example and, and learn from it? Absolutely. Absolutely you can. So the psalmist says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the wilderness. Right? And then, and then the, the sad result is when they harden their hearts against God, God declare on, declared on oath, they will never enter into my rest. And this psalm right here, Psalm 95, is quoted in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 3. So four things, idolatry, immorality, testing God, and grumbling. Paul mentions four things that can keep us or that can drift us away. And he says, we want to keep ourselves from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. We don't want to struggle with those things anymore. The last, the last thing I want to talk about today is communion because I want to talk about what unifies us as a church, what brings us together 
in the body of Christ and that we would deal with that. So we have this unity around the communion table. Thank you, Bob, for leading us in the communion um, where everybody is able to hold the bread, hold that piece of bread and hold that little cup of juice together to remind us of what Jesus did for us. In fact, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, which, Paul, uh, which Bob talked about, that talked about communion itself. But the, what happens in the church together when we celebrate communion is what Paul's going to talk about here. And so Paul says, when we bless the cup at the Lord's table, aren't we sharing in the blood of Christ? And when we break the bread, aren't we sharing in the body of Christ? It's one reason why we celebrate communion every Sunday and why we do it together. Because we're, it's something we share in. It's, you know, the, the, I think Aaron told me, couple weeks ago she says you know the ground is always level at the foot of the cross right what that means is this is something that we all share in common all of us are being saved by faith through grace and it's all based upon what Jesus did for us so none of us ever want to forget the sacrifice that Jesus made for us and that's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper every single Sunday together and that's why we do it together and we share in it together because we are the Bible says and though we are many we all eat from one loaf of bread showing that we are one body and Paul's going to expand on this idea of all of us though we are many are one body in Christ even though there's all of us individuals and God has gifted us in lots of different ways with spiritual gifts. We're going to talk about that in depth when we get to chapter 12. Keep reading ahead. <laughs> We're going to be in 11 next week. We're going to be in 12 the week after that, right? But the unity that we have around the communion table. And so Paul finishes this and he talks about freedom and he talks about his own personal freedom. But he says, you know what? Um, Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. He says, I don't want to just live for myself. I just don't want to say, hey, I've got all kinds of knowledge. I know what's okay and what's not okay for me to participate in in my life. And I don't need anybody else telling me what to do. So uh, why don't you guys just go away and I'll live my own life. Um, not everything is helpful that I do. Not everything is beneficial, though it may be permissible. I love this summary verse in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 24 because when it, and going back to communion, it says that communion reminds us that though we are many, we are one body. And as one body, I have a responsibility to you and you have a responsibility to me. We each are responsible to each other. I have a responsibility to set an example for following Christ that I hope you will follow. And I have a responsibility not to put a stumbling block in any of your guys' way. I have a responsibility not to trumpet my own freedom if it's going to mean something bad for you in your own Christian life, that you're, not, that you're going to be led astray by something that I would do. I would never want to do that. And that's why that, that verse 24 is so powerful. It says, don't think only of your own good. You see, that's the individual. That's the person that says, I'm not really part of this whole churchy thing. You know, it's just me and Jesus over here. It's me and God, you know. And the, it, when you read the New Testament, you're, you're, you're not going to find the individual Christian and God in the New Testament. What you're going to find is you're going to find Jesus and God and God's people together in one body of Christ. And so where we grow, where we develop, where, the, where we encourage one another and spur one another on to good works is not isolated by ourselves. 
It is when we come together and we use, we individually use what God has gifted us to do to build up the rest of the body of Christ. So I want to not just think of my own good. I want to think of other Christians and what is best for them. And so Paul summarizes it. You get down to the end of the chapter and he says, he says this. I think there's a, there's a verse in 31. He says, so whether you eat or drink, you know, whether you do wine or no wine or alcohol or whatever you drink or whatever you do, uh, whatever food you serve, even if that food is, is sacrificed to an idol, when you're thinking about living your life, whatever it is that you do, do it all for the glory of God. Don't give offense to Jews or to Gentiles or to the church of God. If you know something is going to be offensive to somebody else, just exercise your freedom and your self-control and say, you know what? I have the freedom not to do something if I know it's going to offend one of my brothers or sisters in Christ. And, and Paul says this, I too, I try to please everyone in everything I do. I don't just do what is best for me. I do what is best for others so that they may be saved. See, Paul's got the bigger picture in mind. It's not just about my freedom. It's about the body of Christ. It's about, it's about the spiritual health of everybody in this church. It's not just about me, it's about you. So when, I'm li when you're living in your life and I'm living my life, we're living it to the glory of Christ. So uh, here's my, my last slide here. It says, it says, so whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And I just thought about different places, like wherever you are during your week. Because you know, the Christian life only, only does some good for us if we live it out during the week. It's nice to talk about it on Sunday, but it really makes a difference when we live it out during the week. So back up just one slide and it'll say, yeah, so it says whether when you're at work, do it for the glory of God. When you're at home parenting, do it for the glory of God. When you're out driving, <laughs> yes, even then. When you're out driving, do it for the glory of God. And if you have a Christian bumper sticker, you better be a good driver out there because God's reputation is at stake when you're watching tv or listening to music do it for the glory of god when you're out dating someone oh no he's gone to meddling when you're out dating someone do it for the glory of god whatever you do and that's where the next slide comes in and i i, I just like the graphic it says whatever you do whether you eat or drink do it all for the glory of god that's, and when you think about that, that's how you're going to keep your focus on Christ. That's how you're going to stay on the straight and narrow. And that's how you're not going to be led astray by pursuing these lesser evil things that can bring you down. Dear Lord Jesus, we, we want to be faithful to you. We don't want to be, Lord, when we come to the end of our lives, we, we don't want to have a testimony like those Israelites that died in the desert. It started out so well. It started so blessed by you and then, and then fizzled out because they lost their focus, they lost their zeal, they stopped looking to you, they stopped exalting you as number one in their lives and they were led astray by other things. Lord, help us not to go down that path. Help us to learn from the negative consequences of our spiritual forefathers. Help us to follow you and to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you're here today, I just want to remind you, it says that even 
the Israelites in the desert, when they drank from that spiritual rock, that miraculous water, it said that spiritual rock was Christ. When it's talking about Jesus at, in that moment, he was the living water that slaked the thirst of the Israelites. Jesus says, whoever drinks of any other water that's out there, they're going to be thirsty again. But he said, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, that person will never thirst again. If you're thirsty, if you're looking for life and what life is all about, you've come to the right place because Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and he is that living water. And if you want that in your life, if you want that new life, that forgiveness, that wipe your slate clean and being saved by grace and, and come to that new relationship with Christ, I just invite you to pray a prayer. Just pray like this. Just say, Lord Jesus, I come to you today, uh, nothing in my hands. I, I just come in faith, and I want to say I believe in you, and I trust in you. Lord, thank you for giving your life for me on the cross. And Lord, I want to follow you now from this day forward all the days of my life. So Lord, help me. Fill me with your spirit. Show me in your word what I need to do to take some next steps forward. And Lord, thank you for that promise to save me if I put my trust in you. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.